So it is. September 4th. You know how I have uh, begun counting the days? It is the seventh day of Titus Magnus Benjamin Stevens' life. It's interesting when um, I was born again, it was 1993. I spent a couple years really working to get my life right with the Lord throwing away things, uh, inventorying my life, apologizing to everybody that I could find. In 95, I helped some friends begin a church. In 97, I was ordained and began working in that church. From 97 to 2000, it was everything we could do to put that church on good footing. And um, at every step of the way, at salvation, at marriage, when children were born, there was a renewal and a commitment to holiness, a, um, a kind of examining a state of affairs and making sure you have not drifted from the path. Well, now I have a grandson, the third generation of Stevens, and I am seeing the fruit of what an uncompromising walk with the Lord does. I am going to mention it uh, because I'm proud of it. And to be honest, I don't care what anyone else thinks about it. If you're a guest here today, I love you very much. Don't mistake me for being without love. I am a direct human being. The way that I show love is I'll show up and help you move. I will be there when others have walked out. I will stand beside you in trial while the cowards that flatter you with their praise run and hide. I know what it is to raise my firstborn son as a virgin, to have him marry a virgin, to stand in purity and watch the promises of God come true. I now see the fruit of those 20 years of walk with the Lord because I was not seduced away, because I could not be bribed, because the work of God in my life was real. I do not stand before you superior today in any way. I have a thousand flaws, and I'm not going to list them for you. That's between me and the Lord. But what I can tell you is, I have not known a 24-hour time period in my life without repentance. I have not taken a week's vacation from my walk with the Lord, and I have never considered myself off-duty at any time. I am preaching today about the grapes of wrath. Some of you are not going to like it. Some of you will actually feel like I am not talking about the God that you know. I want to challenge you. I am going to spit scriptures out like a man with a fire hose putting out a fire. They will all appear on the screen. If you should happen to miss one, I will meet with you personally and make sure you can find it in your Bible. But today I'm not going to wait for you to get to each one. You will have to examine your foundation and your understanding of the word and determine whether or not what you have accepted is in fact biblical. It is not good enough for you to have heard it from pastors. It is not good enough for you to say, well, it's always been my long-held belief. It is either biblically founded and is complete or it is not biblically founded and is incomplete. To describe a single facet of a person is not to describe the person. If I say, buddy, 
is a physical therapist. That may well be true, but that does not encompass all that Buddy is. And if that is all I describe about Buddy, I have done him an injustice. I have divorced him from his wife. I have murdered his children. I have made him only a therapist instead of a father, instead of a husband, instead of a man who loves the Lord. When you emphasize only the love of God, you have divorced him from his beautiful justice and his characteristics that are worthy of praise and fashioned a God unto your own liking. Today, I am going to kick against that idol. I will try very hard to offend most of you. Some of you will want to get up and walk out. You are a coward if you do, and I am telling you that in advance. If you cannot bear the scrutiny of a grandpa standing behind a pulpit, preaching only from the Word, you will never bear the scrutiny of God Almighty, who the sky and the earth flee from His presence. And if you are able to pass the test today, you will leave here knowing that you have your feet firmly planted on a rock that is Jesus. My detractors will call me arrogant. They will say that I am without love and all the things that they have been saying for 23 years. I say to them in advance, both listening and in the room, 23 years from now, I will still be doing what I am doing. What has your history shown about you? Are you all ready to jump into the word? The place that I want to start this morning is 1 Corinthians 6 in verse 9. Again, our message is the grapes of wrath. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. <coughs> if I have to say, do not be deceived, what does that indicate there is a propensity to do? Be to be deceived. He goes on in this passage to list things that are commonly found in the church. Neither the sexually immoral. What, does it, what constitutes sexual immorality? How would the Bible define someone who is sexually immoral? If you sit in here today, a porn user, you're going to be uncomfortable because you do not have a place in the kingdom of God without repentance. Sexually immoral. You have no place in the kingdom of God. That is an incredible statement. But make sure that you understand it. Idolaters do not either. Nor adulterers. Nor male prostitutes. Nor homosexual offenders. Spend some time contemplating the difference between a homosexual prostitute and a homosexual offender. Male rapist. No place in the kingdom nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Everybody who is in that category can experience a transformation, a total new creation, so that that is no longer what they are. But if you are a new creation and you continue in your adultery, then how can that be true? It's a little bit like saying, I am a married bachelor. Anybody accept that? No. You're a fool if you do. How about, I am a pure harlot. Anybody in here like that one? Uh, I got it. I am an honest thief. 
You cannot be both honest and a thief, and you cannot both be an adulterer and a Christian. You may be an adulterer who was converted by the power of Jesus, washed, sanctified, and justified, and have died to that life, but you may not sit in Christ and adultery. The God of dung and flies has nothing to do with the God of light. They do not dwell in the same house. We live in a day that we say that the love of God means those things can dwell together. I am here to tell you, I am ready to fight for the generation my son will grow, (laughs) my grandson will grow up in. Am I the only man in the room that looks at a grandson and flashes back to the time when I held a son? Is anybody else here that you're too young? It's incredible. I mean, I I can't get over it. And yet, because of the genuine nature of what the Lord did in my family, we broke from all others in our family. All others in our family. We took our stand on the gospel. And we have watched a grandson who starts out better and on better footing than my son did. And a lot better footing than I did. Today I am fighting for the generations that will come from us. And it is time for there to be correction in the house of God. Millennials. Echo boomers. MTV generation. Whatever you want to call them. They are the largest generation the world has ever known. Thinking about the world, our teenagers. Those born 1998 and later will one day run is a sobering process. We have an election before us right now without a righteous choice. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. I'm not here to fight that. They're both wicked people. Their histories are wicked histories, which means no matter what happens, we have difficulties in our future. Righteous people do not marry many times. Righteous people do not have their wives pose in Playboy and pick out new ones Uh, like you pick out cars. Righteous people don't have to delete emails. Righteous people do not have to strategically forget things. We have a choice as a nation ahead of us. And if this generation has caused us to be in a situation that we're in, I'm frightened about what is coming and yet hopeful about what I see being born in our churches. The baby boomers... Loosely defined as those born in the 10th year or 10 years following the GI's return from World War II were about 35% Bible believers. They described themselves as Bible-believing born-again. How many in this room would describe yourself as Bible-believing born-again? <clears throat> well, then I have a target for a few of you in here today as well who sat with your hands in your lap. If you cannot raise your hand in church for that, what are you doing in the world? Under the leadership of those Bible-believing, born-again Christians, the generation that is now 61 to 71 years old for the most part, consider what has happened. It's been the most rapid moral decline in American history. We have legalized abortion. We have introduced Eastern religions into this country. We had a sexual revolution, monumental drug experimentation. 
We have pulled down the Ten Commandments from our buildings, ripped prayer from our schools, and taken under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance. That happened with the baby boomers. What do you think it'll be like with these echoes and these millennials? Only 4% of our teenagers today are predicted to make it into their adult years as quote-unquote Bible-believing, born-again Christians. That's based on the present rate of evangelism, and that statistic was taken by Barna and Ron Luce and a couple other guys more than 10 years ago. Consider, 10 years ago, before we saw legalized gay marriage, before we saw every sitcom on television force down our throats the choice between turning off a television or accepting immorality as norm. This was taken before that. If 35% gave us the worst moral decline in this country's history, what will 4% or less do? It is time to wake up. Aside from this vast percentage deficit, 35% versus 4%, consider that these statistics I'm about to read are 10 years old. 10 years. So the people I'm talking about are likely adults now. And the teenagers now are in a worse situation. Consider where we are starting from. This generation views 16 to 17 hours of television each week. Their average television viewing contains 14,000 sexual scenes or references every year. That's 38 exposures to... Sex a day. By the time the average child graduates from high school, they will have watched 19,000 hours of television. Do you think it's worse now or better since we can binge on Netflix? That includes seeing about 200,000 acts of sex and about a million acts of violence. More than 25% of all teen-targeted radio contains sexual content. 42% of the top-selling CDs sold to our teenagers have sexually explicit lyrics in them. That was 10 years ago. Barna says today, in 2016, right now, 68% of church-going men view porn on a regular basis. 68%. Look around you. How confident are you the people sitting next to you are porn free? Are they dedicating themselves to the Lord by measuring the distance between porn events? Or are they porn free? How could you watch that stuff and love the Lord? Nine out of ten of our teenagers have seen Porn online, 9 of 10. If you are between the age of 13 and 19, stand in this room. Statistically, only two of these people have not seen porn, statistically speaking. Sit down. Is that the generation that we want to raise? That was 10 years ago. 50% of all teens in the United States today... 50% of all, 50% of this group, statistically speaking, 
are not virgins right now. Let that sink in. Do you think the World War II generation was that way? 48% of all high school seniors are sexually active right now, meaning in the last 90 days they have had intercourse. Is that not concerning to anyone here? Over 8,000 teenagers contract an STD every day. While I'm preaching, 720 teenagers in this country will catch an STD. I shudder to say this out loud, but I'm not a shy person. The number one STD being transmitted in our country right now is garneria of the throat. Do you think it matters whether the president of the United States is having sex in the Oval Office? Doesn't define it as sex? Says, oh, it was only oral sex. Do you think it matters? One out of every ten teenage girls in our country has been raped. In the two-hour period while I am preaching, 97 girls who are teenagers will be raped. 97 while I'm preaching in this country. You sure we're a Christian nation? One million are pregnant right now. That's 120 children that are born to teenage mothers while I'm preaching. While I'm preaching. That's not even the sad statistic. The sad statistic is 340,000 will murder their children in one year. Abortion is not a choice, it's murder. It's murder. How could the church bend on an issue like this? It cannot be the church and bend on an issue like murder. If you lose the ability to tell whether or not abortion is murder, you have lost contact with all reason. 33% of our teenagers have been drunk in the last 30 days. One in four use illegal drugs every day. Fear of violence is now the top worry of high school students when they're surveyed. One in five, one in five, 20% admit to contemplating suicide this month. 1,500 succeed in killing themselves every year. 1,500 teenagers. During the time it takes us to preach this two-hour message today, 960 teenagers will mutilate their bodies through cutting. 160 will drop out of school. 178 will be considered abused physically or neglected to the point of malnourishment. 120 will run away from home. And while I'm preaching, one teenager will shoot himself and take his life while I'm preaching, statistically speaking. What is the cause of this? How does it happen? There is a moral bankruptcy in our country. We sit with Bibles in our laps. They stay on the back dashes of our cars. 91% of teenagers on the planet today say there is no absolute truth. We can't even decide what a man and woman is anymore. Being born with male genitalia does not, you're no longer considered male. However you feel at a given moment. Is it any surprise then that of teenagers today, 91% say there's no such thing as truth? 65% say there's no way to tell what is a true religion. 53% believe that Jesus himself sinned. 53% of teenagers surveyed 10 years ago believe Jesus sinned. How is there not a gasp in this room? 
Maybe we'll get it for this one. 40% of teenagers that identify as born again believe Jesus sinned. 40%. Let that sink in for a minute. Where did they get that idea? Could it be that us saying we're just saved sinners... We're all sinners. By the way, we've all sinned. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. Could it be that that has had a corrosive effect and that the Bible does not actually teach there is any such thing as a saved sinner? 75% of teens in America believe that the central message of the Bible, boil it down to a single sentence, what does the Bible teach? 75% say it is God helps those who help themselves. Is that shocking to anybody here? It's not the first time the church has been in this kind of state. In Revelation 2, 4 through 5, I'm going to summarize it for you. You've forsaken your first love. You've fallen from the height of your walk. This was said to the church of Ephesus. It's on your screen now. Do you think that Christianity is hurting in this country forsaken many of its ideal fundamentals when we see pastors being ordained that are homosexuals. Pastors ordained... Go ahead and make you all mad. That are women. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I love my wife, but she cannot be the father to the children. I cannot do this without her, but she is not the father of the children. Read the requirements for pastor. You have to take out a black highlighter to get the idea that you can do the things that are being done. It proves that the social decay has had a bigger effect on the church than the church has had on society around it. To the church of Smyrna in in Revelation 2.10, do not be afraid of what you're going to suffer. Be faithful to the point of death. We don't believe you have to be faithful to the point of death. We don't believe you'll face death. We think that we'll get raptured out, never facing a trial, but maybe those Jews will get the hell beat out of them. This is sin. It is grotesque sin. And what it has created is a do-nothing church that is watching the world go to hell in a handbasket all around us while we celebrate our own greatness. Revelation 2.14, church at Pergamum. You have people who hold to the teaching of Balaam. He goes on to describe sexual immorality. Balaam was known for prophesying for money and being sexually immoral. Good thing that's not associated with the church today. Preaching for money and being sexually immoral. Listen, in life-changing ministries and in the one association, we will not tolerate sexual immorality. And I'm putting everyone in this room on notice. If you cheat on your wife, we are not friends. I don't care how long we've known each other. I don't care what you think binds us. I don't care what you think I ought to do. I will not associate with a man who cheats on his wife or a wife who cheats on her husband. The Bible is crystal clear about this. Yeah, there ought to be amens all over the room. You think I like losing friends any more than anyone else? If you cannot stand with Jesus on matters of holiness, then you are not righteous. I don't care what position you think you have. 
in Thyatira, Revelation 2.20. They tolerated Jezebel, sexual immorality, adultery, learning Satan, so-called deep secrets. Do you mean that they had a problem with female authority that was driven from wickedness? Do you mean that they loved sexual deviance and they spent their time studying things that were really not what God wanted them to study? Have you watched TBN? Have you seen what's going on in Christian television? Has anybody in here watched what is supposed to be called Christian worship? Oh my goodness. YouTube it. You tell me, do you think that a woman in a tank top, appealing to sensuality, singing about Jesus, is something that will be going on in the heavens? And we have swallowed it. Hook, line, and sinker. We have forgotten that you can elevate music above the worship of the one you're worshiping. We have forgotten that you cannot have performance in your worship. That if it's worship of Him, there can be no glory in it for you. Let me ask you, why in those videos is there not a fat person on the stage? Why in those videos is everybody's hair perfect? Why do we have 25 camera angles all to make sure that they're presented perfectly if they're presenting Jesus? Oh, come on, saints. We need to wake up. Just because they sing Christian lyrics does not mean that they're singing in the Spirit of Christ. We have lost contact with reality, spiritually speaking. Sardis, Revelation 3.1 You are dead and dying. Wake up. I have not found your deeds complete, he goes on to say. Church, think about that. You've been taught deeds don't matter. He said, wake up, you're dead. He's speaking to a church with his burning lampstand in it. It's the God of glory in the personage of Jesus Christ speaking to those who are bought by his blood saying you are dying. Our theology doesn't even allow for that to happen. He says, I, I have not found your deeds complete in my sight. Could it be that we have elevated this false grace and false faith so high that we have become do-nothing Christians? Did you know that the first chapter of Romans actually declares something about your faith? It has to produce obedience. You don't have faith if it is not producing an obedience. George Michael sang in the 90s that he had faith. He sang that you had to have faith. Well, he shook, shook his body on TV to the delight of a lot of little girls until they found out that he was in love with men in public restrooms. Just because a man says he has faith does not mean he does. The second chapter of James says you show your faith by your deeds. Is there anybody in here that would like to show their faith by their deeds? I believe the world is sick of a Christianity that says, do what I say and do not do what I do. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, if you don't believe me, at least believe what you see me doing. Church of Philadelphia, Revelation 3, summarizing 8 through 11. I know you have little strength. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. You mean that can happen? You can have a crown taken? Hold on to your little strength? Hey man, I stand positionally righteous in Christ. If you're positionally righteous, shouldn't that position show up in your actions? 
By the way, how many times do you watch porn before you become a pornographer? I think people aren't preaching about this because they're watching porn. Anybody in this church is free to pick up my phone, Pastor Matt's phone, Pastor Wade's phone at any time. You stop by our house, you will not find the internet histories erased. There's a reason for that. You want to see what we've watched on the television, the rare times we do watch televisions? I never have erased the history in Netflix. There's a reason for that. Never erase the history in YouTube. Ask your husband, ladies, why they erase their histories. Husbands, you might need to ask ladies. The fastest growing porn market is ladies watching porn. It's been an epidemic of it. Church of Laodicea, Revelation 3.14, lukewarm, acquired wealth. They're wretched, pitiful, blind, poor, and naked. What is wrong with the church? Is it unique in history? It's not. The church that started in power tended to laxity. 1 John 3.7, John is an old man. I'm not going to point out anybody in the room that John was about their age, <coughs> but the oldest among us. That's, that's John's on the island of Patmos. He writes this as if to say, I'm through with all the ambiguity. You know, Grandpa's going to say something. That's, that's kind of the... Anybody got a relative that you like, they're just, they're going to say whatever is on their mind? They've reached a certain age where they just kind of feel entitled to tell you your baby's ugly or, you know, your marriage not going to make it or whatever it is they say. I'm the only one got relatives like that. Well, you got a pastor like that. So there, you got it. Listen to what John says. First John 3, 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray as if it's possible. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. How much ambiguity is there in that? What about grace? What about positional righteousness? What about all of those things? Apparently, John wanted to cut through the uh, theological crap. If you stand in sin, if you sinned this week and you plan on sinning next week, you're here saying, I'm really sorry, I wish it hadn't happened, but it's going to happen again. If you use words like inevitable to describe sin, you have a reprobate mind, not a renewed mind. You're an enemy of God. Sin is not inevitable. In fact, when the born-again believer sins, it's not him who sins, but sin working in him. He counts it dead. It is crucified with Christ. It is the exception, not the defining rule. My wife doesn't have to worry about where I am. If I'm late for dinner, it's because I'm witnessing in a parking lot, not because I'm chasing a skirt. I don't have to click off of whatever I'm watching when someone walks in the room because the Spirit of Christ is in me. Amen. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Say that with me. To destroy the devil's work. Let's do it again. To destroy the devil's work. Church, hear me. 
You cannot be doing the devil's work and destroying the devil's work. That is lunacy. Why would I preach like this? I love you. That is why. I am fearful that some of you are sitting in this room with a sense of security you ought not have. You ought to be worried that the ground is about to open and swallow you. You cannot continue to sin and be in Christ. John says so as clear as day. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. If Christ is in you, then sin is perishing. Say it with me. It is perishing. It is perishing. Oh, come on, church. If any man be in Christ, not some men, any man be in Christ, He is a new creation. The old is gone. So I am not going to hear the 47th confession as if I worked for the papal office of your porn addiction. You better get on your face before God before He strikes you dead. I will not associate with those who are immoral. There is one kind of immoral person that I love. The one who is coming to Jesus saying, I'm immoral. And I'm broken. I have no way out. If he doesn't help me, then he is just in damning me to hell. That's the person I'll associate with. But those of you that believe yourself to be in Christ and you are living in sin, there will be nowhere for you to hide on that day. Judgment begins with the house of God. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is... He who has suffered in his body is... Don't tell me you're in Christ while you're still dabbling in sin. Like Ulysses, you have tied yourself to the mast that is the crucifix. You are listening to the sirens and counting on ropes to hold you back. You'll go mad like that. I am done with sin. I don't want to hear the siren's voice. I don't want to see their image. I'm not fascinated with the world. I am at war with the spirit of the world. Is there not a person in here that is sick of this wishy-washy, panty-waisted gospel? They preach about money while they're slaves to lasciviousness. And you put up with it. Church, If you could play for Charles Finney, for John Wesley, for William Booth, for any of them, the garbage that is spewed out as gospel, if they had hold of a charisma magazine just one time, they probably would have burst into flames. They would be so angry. I can hear people saying it. What's gotten into Eric? He's mad. He's totally without love. I don't see the grace of Christ. You feel free to throw your stones. I will be standing with Jesus while you waffle in your conviction. I know my king. I'm going to tell you the truth. I get as mad when you cheat on him as if my wife cheated on me. Because I love him. I love him. And you think you're doing something by coming to me and saying, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I watch porn again. And it's the 10,000th time we've talked about it. You tempt me to the point of sin. If I thought I could beat the gospel in me, trust me, beat the gospel in you, trust me, 
you would be viewing me from the flat of your back. But that's not how it works. You have to love him. You have to love him. You have to love him. You focus on him loving you so much you forget you have to love him. Does anybody love him in this room? When I read the fifth chapter of Amos, I'm overwhelmed with the idea that the same things that were true about Israel in 750 B.C., They loved the Lord. They were loved by the Lord. At least that's what was supposed. They were saved by their trust in the Lord. At least that's what was supposed. I think it's equally true of the church at large. Many listening to us online. And yeah, some of you in this room. In Amos 5, pick up in verse 1. Hear this. Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament. That's deep mourning. I take up concerning you. By the way, Amos was not the son of a prophet. Amos was not a priest. Amos didn't choose this life any more than I chose it. My ambitions in life were to be a football coach and a history teacher. But I gave my life to the Lord. The life He's given me back is better than the one that I chose for myself. I don't regret it. It's not... It's not been an easy life. It's required self-denial and crucifixion daily. But that's exactly what he told me when he offered me salvation. If somebody is offering you a salvation that does not require your crucifixion daily, your self-denial daily, they are lying to you and both will perish. You and them if you follow them. Verse 2. Fallen is... Fallen is... How dare God speak about that? Isn't that a private matter? You know, a Jewish wedding ceremony was held in such a way that if you happened to marry somebody that was not a virgin, everybody in your town would know it at the moment of consummation because you would have no blood of the covenant to show the attendees of the wedding. Can you imagine if 50% of our high school seniors have had sex in the last how many ever days? Can you imagine? This happens when you treat sin as inevitable. When you wink and nod and say, hey, don't sin, but we know you're going to. That is not how the Stevens view it. Not how the Sutherlands view it. It's not how the Peros view it. For us, it's holiness or die trying. Listen, that's the direction this plan is heading. If you don't want that, you feel free to jump off. Because that is where we're going. That is where we will land. We are intolerant of sin. You can bring your church logos, your platitudes, the the little things that you make yourself feel better with. Like, uh, you know, God loves everybody. Yeah, well, you haven't read enough of the word to find out there are things that he hates. There are even people that he hates. There are people that are so vile to him. He said, I will wipe you out and your family line. Period. Verse 3. This is what the sovereign Lord says. The city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. Are you getting the idea that it is a narrow remnant that will survive the judgment of God? What makes you confident you're in that remnant? Is it because you've been two weeks without porn? Three weeks without uh, breaking your oath to tithe? Well, 
What is it that makes you confident the judgment of God is not on you? Seek me and live, verse 4. Do not seek Bethel. Do you know what Bethel was? It's a place called the house of God, but they had watered down their worship. It did not, it did not represent purity. It's a place that was, uh, it had a form of godliness. It just did not have the power of God. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour and Bethel will have no one to quench it. Do you mean that God will go through his own house like fire? See, when you divorce the Older Testament from the Newer Testament, you miss an incredibly important fact. Every person in Israel was already adopted by God. Every person in Israel covered under the blood of the Lamb. Every person in Israel baptized in the Red Sea. Every person in Israel just as saved as you by covenant. And yet, God's fire swept through Israel. John the Baptist said, I have a winnowing fork in my hand. There is a separation, a distinction that will occur within God's house, sheep from goats. You thought goats were the the worldly lost people. No, they look nothing like sheep. Every parable in the book of Matthew is about the body of believers, not the lost. We read these things and twist them and contort them to our liking to alleviate the pressure of a holy life. When you recognize God's requirements for holiness, it will make you fall on your face and say, I need you, Lord. I need you. I am dependent on you. I can't do this without you. Lord, listen to me, you Pentecostals. You think you're filled with the Holy Ghost because you speak in other tongues. Listen to the word, Holy Spirit. You cannot be filled with the Spirit of holiness if you are not holy. In Hebrew, Ruach. HaKodesh, spirit of holiness. Don't tell me that you're... People have had the audacity to step forward and prophesy and watch porn in the same week. People have the audacity to critique sermons, to talk about what we should do better. And you have not even been faithful to the Lord in your finances. Are you kidding me? Do you think you will escape the judgment of God? I'm not threatening you. The Word threatens you. The truth is I've spent my entire adult life encouraging right behavior. I've spent my entire adult life pleading with people to experience the goodness of God that I have. But if you have no fear of God, then you deserve the damnation that comes upon you. This verse, this verse 7 this, is, this hurts. It hurts me. You turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Who did that? The saved house of Joseph. They cast righteousness to the ground. They made it of no effect. They threw it down and dirtied it. What is your walk doing? Is it elevating the righteousness of Christ or are you sullying the name of Christ because He knows what you do in secret? You getting the impression that I'm a little upset with sin? Yes. 
I have more respect for a young teenager that says, no, I'm not a Christian anymore than I do those that claim to be in Christ and are dwelling in wickedness. I don't believe him. I don't believe him at all. I don't accept what he says about his life. I love him. I know what the Lord says about him. I'm praying I will watch that demonic power fall. But I have more respect for a young man that stands up and says, don't count me a Christian anymore. Then those of you who claim to be in Christ and live like hell all the way to the heaven that you say you're going to. When we continue to sin after tasting the kingdom of God, we are casting righteousness to the ground. Look at verse 10. You hate the one who reproves you in court and despises him who tells the truth. Oh, I can forecast the kind of despising that I will get from preaching like this. I know it. I know it because I know that spirit. When we stand for righteousness, people call us legalistic. When we stand on what the word clearly says, they say we have a religious demon. The same people that commit adultery, the same week, they will critique our sermons and tell us what we should have done better. This kind of reprobate thinking is proof that the judgment of God has come upon them. It is proof that they've been given over to the futility of their thinking. The anger of backslidden Christians over my assertion that God does not accept their unrighteous behavior is similar to the gay and lesbian indignation over our lack of acceptance of their lifestyle. Have you ever noticed that if you're sitting in the room with a person who is self-professed gay, you say nothing. You hurl no insult. They're angry with you for simply not accepting that what they do is right. Backslidden Christians are the same way. They'll say, you killed me. You're doing terrible things to me when all you're doing is refusing to associate with someone who is wicked. Church, you are put on notice. God requires holiness. There is not one person in here, not from the oldest to the youngest, that God will exempt of that requirement. Look at verse 14. No, 12. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. We hate this kind of preaching. Why? He knows, but he loves us anyway. Well, you need to keep reading. He loves the man who repents and turns towards him and leaves those things behind. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. The idea that you can continue to sin in the kingdom. And it doesn't matter because you're positionally righteous. is sickening. Look at verse 14. Seek good, not evil, that you may... Then the Lord Almighty will be with you just as you say He is. You know what the most common retort that I get to a scriptural correction I give someone is? God's with me. Well, you keep telling yourself that, buddy. Samson thought the same thing while they tore his eyes from the socket. You know when the Lord is with you? When you're with Him. You want law prophets' writings on that? Meet me after the service. I give it to any man who has the courage to stand here and contest it. Saying that the Lord is with you does not make it so. Singing worship songs, tithing, does not make it so. Consider verse 21. I hate, I despise your religious feast. I cannot stand your assemblies. God said that to His people who believed they were saved. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Does anybody find that strange since he required that they be brought? 
God would not accept from Cain his offering either. God will not accept from a wicked man an offering as a bribe to consider him righteous. It doesn't matter if you say that he is with you. It doesn't matter if you sing his songs. It doesn't matter if you give money to his causes. He is not with you if you are not with him. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. Did you know that your songs were supposed to be a throne on which he sat? But here, he is telling his people, get your praise and worship out of my sight. I will not listen to the music of your harps. What is he concerned with? But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Could you get the idea that God is upset with people that claim to stand for righteousness but are acting wickedly? Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you have made for yourselves. So wait, Eric, I don't have a Molech. I don't have a Dagon, don't you? Don't you? Isn't that the case with everything that you lift up above him? You've heard this sermon so many times, this idea so many times. You don't think you have idols. When Pastor Wade stands up before this service and says, we're going to tear those idols down and explains the historical context, you go, oh, yeah, amen, let's sing about it, but you don't want to do it. You'll go to a baseball game and stay without leaving once, but during church, you'll get up 47 times to check on your child because you have no taste for the gospel. Hey, pastor, pastor, I love the church. I'm with the church. I just love porn too. You never brought a real offering to the Lord until he has all of your life. Every bit of it. What you did was mix your golden calf with his righteousness. If we ignore these warnings and insist that we are blessed because we have knowledge of God, will he spare us while we go our own way? Do you really think he will? Let's examine Deuteronomy 29, 19. When such a person hears the words of this oath, he invokes a blessing on himself and therefore thinks, I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. This will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. The Lord will never be willing to forgive him. His wrath, say his wrath. His wrath and his zeal will burn against that man. All the curses written in this book will fall upon him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. The Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for disaster. According to the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. Do you believe you can go your own way? So, oh, pastor, that was Old Testament. You keep thinking that. You're going to find out that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Either your life belongs to him or you have deceived yourself. Hearing the gospel does not make you a Christian. Doing the gospel some of the time does not make you a Christian. When the Spirit of Christ is in you, burning for holiness with your daily, hourly, minute-by-minute obedience and dependent upon Him, then you might stand positionally righteous. Church, this has been so watered down that you need to hear these kind of words. Faith to spare. 
What a concept. Faith despair. I have more than enough faith. Do you have faith that he will spare your life? See, spare is one of those words. I have a spare tire. Got spare money. Can also mean I was spared from the execution. Faith to spare. Do you have faith that will spare your life? Faith is what gets credited as righteousness. Are you confident that you have faith that will save your life? Consider Deuteronomy 13.6. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love, say the wife I love, or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let's go worship other gods. By the way, if you think that you can watch a porn clip and you're not worshiping other gods, you are as stupid as the porn clip you are watching. If you think that you can watch something that you don't consider porn, but Jesus would, I'm not going to ask you how many of you have watched the most popular series on TV. I'm not going to do it because it'll embarrass you. You'll either lie or you'll be guilty sitting here in church. Let us go and worship other gods, gods neither you nor your fathers have known, gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other. Do not yield to him or listen to him. Show him no pity. Do not spare him or shield him. You must certainly put him to death. Oh, that's Old Testament. Do you think God feels any differently about sin than that? Look at verse 11. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and no one among you will do such an evil thing again one of the reasons that we have seven out of every ten bible believing church going men watching porn is because church discipline is not happening it will happen here you watch porn you will have no place among us you cheat on your wife you have ended your relationship with us period is that clear? is there anybody in here that that is not unequivocally clear on that? You continue to approach me after we have made that clear, you put yourself in peril. I will not be around that kind of moral filth. If you're sitting in here and you have done those things, there is a way you can get right. But you may not cheat on your wife on Monday, repent on Sunday, cheat on her again on Monday, repent on Sunday, cheat on her again on Monday, repeat on Sunday, and expect me to accept your repentance as genuine. God will not accept it and neither will I. Ezekiel 5, we're moving from law to prophets to writings. Ezekiel 5, verse 11. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your... Because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your... Vile images and detestable practices, I will withdraw my favor. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. Is God's Word God's Word or not? He will not spare... The person who is sitting in immorality and calls themselves the very house of God. If this was true of a natural building, how much more is it true of your own body? Church, this is something that we have got to get real about. Am I beginning to make a dent? Psalm 78, verse 49. He unleashed against them his hot anger. 
His wrath, indignation, and hostility. I thought God was a loving God. I, I thought, my God is love. Well, your God may be just love. Mine is more complex than that. Which God are you serving? The God of the Bible or something else? A band of destroying angels. He prepared a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave them over to the plague. He struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, the firstfruits of manhood in the tents of Ham. Do you really think that he killed the firstborn of Egypt, but he'll ignore your sin? You, do you think that he just... Where's Ibrahim? Stand up, Ibrahim. Ibrahim is an Egyptian, an Egyptian that I love. An Egyptian that when he walked through these doors, above his head, I physically saw a passage from Isaiah 19. Egypt will be holy unto the Lord. He's called to be an evangelist. He has a wife that makes him even more attractive. He's an amazing man and he's an Egyptian. Do you think God doesn't love him because he's an Egyptian? Then how did God kill his forefathers for their sin, but he will spare you? Sit down, Ibrahim. Let's get real. This is not a mythical story. It's not like Star Wars because it happened a long time ago in a galaxy far away. Somehow it's less potent. Ancestors of Ibrahim died because of their unrepentant sin. God unleashed His fury on them. But He's going to wink and nod at your sin because why? You're an American? Is that why? Why will he wink and nod at you? Because you say you love Jesus. If you love Jesus, obey his commands. Second Peter 2. You happy we got to the New Testament? Elder says, yes, get us to the New Testament. Okay. For if he did not spare angels when they sinned. Second Peter 2, 4 but sent them to hell. He didn't spare the angels? How many of you consider yourself an angel? My little girl says she's daddy's little angel. Well, I love my little girl, but daddy won't spare her and God won't spare her. He is righteous. He is holy. He doesn't spare angels. Putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and if he made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, are you kidding me? The New Testament affirms the judgment of God displayed in the Older Testament. It affirms it and affirms it and affirms it. Look at the last verse, verse 10. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire. Say corrupt. Corrupt Corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Do you mean that God's nature hasn't changed? The judgment He poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah, He will pour out on anybody that follows, hear this, the corrupt desire of their sinful nature. By the way, who was Peter writing to? Was 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 he writing to a group of Catholics somewhere? Uh, evangelicals love to point at Catholics. Maybe, maybe it was the Catholics. No. Uh, he, was, he was writing to Mormons. No. Jehovah's Witness. N- no. Who was he writing to? The saved of his day. Don't believe me? Go back and look at the beginning of the letters. He's writing to the saved of his day. And do you know what he warns them? 
You follow your corrupt sinful desires and you'll be destroyed. That is the God that we serve. So if you're watching this and you say, but my God is love, then you may not have the God of the Bible. And if you are sitting in here today and this message is offensive to you, it ought to be your sin that is offensive to you, not God's character. Let God be true and every one of you a liar. Let's go to Romans. Everybody loves Romans. The great theological work, Romans. Oh man, give me some Romans. Let's get on that Roman road. Man, give me some Romans. I I need to hear about the grace. Okay. Romans 11, verse 19. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. See, the thing is, pastor, I stand complete in Christ. I'm grafted in. I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. Granted. Say with me, granted. I grant your positional righteousness. But they were broken off because of unbelief. They were in and then they were out. Why? Because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Faith is accompanied by obedience. It is evidenced by obedience. Faith can be proven in your track record. Do not be arrogant, but be a... Do you mean that we are supposed to have a reverential fear of God? Maybe all of this talk of the love of God has robbed us of the fear of God. For if God did not spare, say He didn't spare. If God did not spare the natural branches, hear this, He will not spare you either. Now, obviously the book of Romans is written to lost people, right? No. It's written to the church at Rome. It's written to Christians and God says He will not spare you. Oh my goodness. It's almost like the Bible has a different theology than our churches. 2 Corinthians 13.1 This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by two or three witnesses. Why does Paul always quote the Older Testament? What's wrong with him? We're a New Testament church. Paul didn't suffer from that kind of idiocy. I already gave you a warning when I was with you a second time. I now repeat it while I'm absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. Paul sided with God against the church that he loved. They had sexual immorality. They had lawsuits. He told them, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God like this. You know what else they had? Spiritual gifts. You know what else they had? Fruit that showed they were saved. And he still spoke to them this way. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we live with him to serve you. Hear this. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Why does Jesus demand through the apostle you to test yourself? Apparently, raising a pinky and filling out a faith conversion card is not proof. Apparently, a gift certificate, a baptismal certificate, something hang, is not proof. Do you not realize that Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Who is he saying that to? A church that had every spiritual gift working. And I trust that you will discover I have not failed the test. Listen, I'm not ashamed to stand before you today and say, if you do not see the fruit of Christ in me, leave. If you have serious doubts whether or not I'm walking in holiness, then I need to go or you need to go. 
I have submitted myself to the one association. My front door is never locked. There's a reason for that. I pass this test. His spirit is inside me, bearing witness with my spirit that I am his. I don't need macho bravado for that. I don't need to put my hands on my hip and slander an accuser. I don't need to do those things. When someone rebukes me, I can hug them and kiss them because I know where I stand in Christ. What is your reaction like when somebody suggests that you may not be what you think you are? Is it indignation? Consider this about God's nation, knowing that they're an example to you. Do I still have your attention? If you're not listening today, then I don't know if there's any hope for you. Granted, I may not be the pastor that I should be. Maybe I'm a terrible speaker, all of those things. We never promised you anything other than the truth. If this does not interest you, how can you be in Christ? Isaiah 65, 2. All day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good. If you read that and you think of people who are not believers, you do not understand God. This is His nation. The nation that at the beginning of this book, he fills the temple with his presence. Uh, Isaiah is an Israelite who's writing this. This is the book that prophesies in many chapters about Jesus. And he says they're obstinate because they are walking in ways not good. Are you walking in right ways? Are more hours of your day spent serving the Lord, thinking on the Lord, doing the Lord's will, or doing your will? Pursuing your own imaginations. A people who continually provoke me to my very face. Do you know what's different about my, my, my relatives that call themselves pagans and those who call themselves Christians? The ones who call themselves Christians are right in God's face provoking Him. They are claiming to be of Christ while they live like hell. The ones that call themselves pagans are claiming to be far from Him and showing themselves to be truthful. Are you right in God's face provoking Him? Are you in here lifting up his name, saying, I'm going to tear down those high places, walking out of here with all of them still firmly intact? Leviticus 26 contains one of the most dire warnings I've ever read in my life. It's 26, 27. If in spite of this, you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile towards me. Did you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Anybody read the fourth chapter of James? Anybody read 1 John 2? You're a friend with the world. You're an enemy of God. Hostile towards me. Then in my anger, I will be hostile towards you. And I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sons and daughters. You know who said that? God. Your loving God. Your New Testament God. Your sweet Savior Jesus. Because He is the Word manifest. He is as much this manifest as John 3.16 manifest. And you know what he says? You continue to be hostile towards me in your actions. And we will reach a place where you will do things that animals don't even do. You'll eat your young. It ought to be quiet in here. That ought to be a somber moment. Because Moses' prediction came true in 2 Kings 6. In 2 Kings 6, you can read about cannibalism among those who were the people of God. It was under the reign of Jerome. 
In Jeremiah 19, he warned them again. And in the Babylonian captivity, according to the fourth chapter of Lamentations, it happened again. And there are historical accounts of it happening at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. In a day when we beg people to be saved and we're tolerant of blatant idolatry in the house of God, we need to consider the way that Joshua approached people. In the 24th chapter of Joshua, you're going to want to get there for this. Verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve Him with how much faithfulness? How much faithfulness? Then all of you should be saying it. How much faithfulness? Throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river. We may not have inherited a perfect thing from the baby boomer generation. But then what are we passing on to our children? And what will they pass on to theirs? I'm a grandfather now. I know what my son will pass on to Titus because I gave him the good deposit that was given me. I fought with him. We wrestled over the salvation. He was standing in this very spot when he came under such conviction that he said, I die if I don't get right with God this very moment. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, choose for yourself this day whom you'll serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. This is usually where the plaque ends. It's where grandma quits knitting. It's where the bumper sticker stops. It's not where Joshua stopped with the people. In verse 16, the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord and serve other gods. They already were. That's the point. They already were, and they're saying they're not. It was the Lord God Himself who brought us and our forefathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery. But we know that they worshipped other gods in the desert for 40 years. And they're standing here just like so many in the house of God saying, No, 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 we won't do that. You already have. He performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites we lived in. We too will serve the Lord because He is our God. They are saying because God has been good to us, that's evidence we've been good to God. No, it's not. It rains on the just and the unjust. Just because God did something good in your life does not mean that that is His approval on your life. He is good to those who are wicked and good to those who are righteous. Just because a man can sing or preach, just because somebody has wealth or appears to be doing good, that is no sign that God is with them. In fact, it might be the very thing that has snared them. Because Samson stayed strong. When he was spiritually weak, he didn't know he was spiritually weak. It was when his strength left him, he realized God left him. What would be required for you to understand your position with the Lord? Joshua said to the people, Joshua would never make it today. He couldn't preach on today's circuit. Couldn't happen. Nobody would put up with Joshua. Joshua said to the people, verse 19, You're not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, He will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after He has been good to you. Put that in your theological pipe and smoke on it. 
After he has been good to you, what will he do if you rebel? Burn you. Oh, no, pastor. God, I serve won't do that. Well, then you have a different Lord than Joshua had. He warned the people twice. People said, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you're witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen to serve the Lord. How many of you would respond to that altar call? They said, yes, we're witnesses. Then he sets up a rock and says, the rock's going to witness. I want it clear. You said you'd serve God. I know you're not going to, but you said you would. That's what, Mo, that's, that's what Joshua said. Verse 23. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. What was required? They're saying we would never serve foreign gods. Never. He's saying they already are. I said, no, 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 we'll serve the Lord. He says, no, your history's proven you don't serve the Lord. No, 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 we'll serve the Lord. Twice you've said it now. Why don't you go ahead and throw away your gods? How many of you are sitting on idols in this room? Listen, when you consider a life like Chris Rosora, we just helped Chris move on a Saturday. Chris has been in our church far less than a year. Is there anybody here that hasn't seen a total revolution in his life? Okay, so I'm just going to do something here. Things pastors aren't supposed to do. How do you stack up with the kind of change you've seen in Chris's life? Have you had the kind of year he's had? Or in 10 years, have you not moved as far as he has in one? Have you been in this church five years and you've mostly been a thorn? You don't like anything that we do? You don't follow any of the teaching that we give? Your goal is to stay out of line of this pastor's sight? Is that who you are? Are you the other kind of son? Oh, no, pastor, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. But you never do. Are you the son that says, I no, pastor, I'm not going to do it, but you repent and do? Which one are you? Would you be embarrassed if I called your name now? We're that size congregation. We'll always be that size congregation. I know you. You know me. How does your walk stack up with this message? I'm not willing to lose any. I want to win. I am tired of sin in the house of God. I'm angry about it. I'm deeply broken about it. This is our lives' work right here. It's precious to us. And if it would upset you, if I came into your house that had white couches, white carpet, if it would upset you, If I came in and just rolled in something dead and nasty and spread it all over your house, I'm angry that you have no fear of God and you spend time around us in wickedness. That angers me. I just want a pastor who's loving. There is a clown off of 59 that will entertain you every day of the week. You go find him and his wicked wife will do the same thing. They want your money and they'll tell you anything to get it. We need to stop taking repentance for granted. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be... Holiness requires effort. What do you have to be? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Say that with me. Without holiness, holiness. no one will see the Lord. Lord. Like Joshua, very well, you said it. 
you're not going to be able to stand before him and say, I didn't know. You're not going to be able to say, that evangelist who took my money told me. What you are going to have said out of your own mouth is you will never see the Lord without holiness. Just in case you think it's just some kind of strange theological positional holiness, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, what did he want to do? He was rejected. What Esau did could not be recovered from. Where's that in your theology? Where are you reading this from? The Newer Testament. Perhaps Esau could be saved, but Esau could not inherit the blessing he had. Could not be done. He could bring about no change of mind. From whom? God. Though he sought the blessing with tears. You come, you weep. You come and you express contrition. You tell me I have to accept your contrition. I'll accept the changed life when I see it. I do not accept your tears. Charismatics are exceedingly good at crying at the altar and standing up and going back to a sinful lifestyle. I do not accept it because God does not accept it. So I don't have anything to prove to you. Then you need to wonder why God made me your pastor. Why he made Wade Sutherland your pastor. Why he made Matthew Pirro your pastor. Well, y'all aren't. Then what are you doing here? Exodus 32.30 is an amazing verse. I know we're reaching the place where we're nearing the end of a service. Your butt's crying out to you. Some of you even closed your Bibles. You just, you can watch a three-hour movie, but God forbid we talk about the most important thing in the universe for a couple hours. I have no sympathy for that attitude. I don't really care when you want to go home. It doesn't bother me a bit if we preach longer than your expectation. I have a burden to share exactly what the Lord has said to share. And I'm not going to stop. If you have the courage to get up and walk out, then you do it. I'm going to stand here and tell exactly what he said, and you will be without excuse. In Exodus 32:30, the next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. Say great sin. Not all sin is equal. It is a great sin to be given a, a, a theophany to a whole nation and in the same month worship golden calves. It is a great sin to preach on a Sunday and commit adultery on a Monday or Tuesday. It is a great sin to prophesy and then in the same month watch porn. It is a great sin to sit in a church like this and act like the heathen do. But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps. Say perhaps. Perhaps, perhaps I can make atonement for you. Moses who had just spent 40 days on the mountain with God. 40 days. Was not sure that their sin could be forgiven. But you declare yourself forgiven the moment after you sin. And judge anybody as unloving, forgiving, if they don't accept your repentance. Moses, 
who just saw the face of God for 40 days was not sure they could be forgiven. Jeremiah 26, 2. This is what the Lord says. Stand in the courtyard of the Lord's house and speak to all the people of the towns of Judah who come to worship in the house of the Lord. Tell them everything I command you. Do not omit a word. Perhaps they will listen. Say it, perhaps. Perhaps they will listen and each will turn from his evil. Then I will relent and not bring on them the disaster I was planning because of the evil they've done. God himself says, there's a moral contingency here. That's what that word means, perhaps, in, in Hebrew. It's a moral contingency. We're going to have to wait and see what they do. 400 years of Calvinism has created something in your conscience that says he already knows and he's already forgiven me. Are you kidding me? Then there was no point to the crucifixion. Zephaniah 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Who seeks him? Humble. You who do what he commands. What does the Bible call humility? Obedience to the commands. It means you think more of what he says you should do than you think you ought to do. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. <clears throat> Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Could it be that a couple thousand years of preaching of the certainty of your salvation, your positional security has created a moral laxity in the body of Christ? That we've changed the, God, uh, the, the grace of God, as Jude says, into a license for immorality. That you sit in the very house of God saying, because I hear the words of that blessing, even though I persist in going my own way. No curse will come on me. But God himself has crossed his arms in the heaven and say, as long as you persist in going your own way, I will never forgive you. Oh, well, that was Old Testament. So is Leviticus 17, which says, Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But you like that verse. So is Leviticus 19. Love your enemies. You like that verse. Do you get to pick and choose the verses you like and don't like? Luke 20, verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Perhaps they will respect him. Does your life show a respect for Jesus or a disdain? Before you answer that question, I'm going to read something to you and not tell you where it's at. That way you have to listen. If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him? By the way, that means saved. And who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That was Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. Old or New Testament? That's New Testament. 
if we deliberately sin. If you are not fearful at this point, then you don't understand the nature of your God. If you are not sitting here taking an inventory of your life, then you are overconfident. There's not much that is left at my disposal to try to get your attention. I'm going to try with a couple more scriptures, and we'll either get there or we won't. But at the end of the day, I will be standing with the Lord. We'll see where you stand. In Acts 8.20, Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Let me just go ahead and tell you that the person this is said to was saved in the previous chapter. Anybody in here saved? He was baptized in the previous chapter. Anybody in here baptized? This was said by the Apostle Peter to a saved and baptized man. You ready for the rest of it? Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps He will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. You mean it is not a certainty? The Apostle Peter, what was wrong with his theology? Poor Peter. He needed to go sit with one of our hyper-grace teachers. He just did not understand the gospel. You pray to God, you saved and baptized person, and perhaps God will forgive you for having this wicked thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and a captive to sin. It is not possible to be in Christ and be a captive to sin. If you are a captive to sin, you are trading sin for Christ. Christ is the liberator from sin. This is why sin for a Christian is something that you have struggled against and you are winning. To be a captive to sin means that, hear this word, it is inevitable. If you believe it is inevitable, it is because you are not in Christ. It turns out that our great evangelists of yesteryear, men like Charles Finney, preach differently than they do today. I was reading his lectures on revival. One of the reasons that Finney's preaching was so effective is, number one, he didn't just talk about sin. He talked about the people's sin who were sitting there. Number two, he makes notes that in most towns that he preached in where there were mass salvations, thousands at a time, there had been a cholera epidemic beforehand. In other words, the people being in proximity to death in pestilence reminded them of their need for salvation. We are like men standing outside holding keys, yelling, you can be free, you can be free, you can be free. And it means nothing to people because they don't know they're standing in a jail cell. Not preaching about the judgment of God. Just saying, well, we're just going to love them into the kingdom. They don't know why they need to come into the kingdom, which is why so many sit in here and you don't understand what salvation is. You say that you're saved because you say you love the Lord. You say that you're saved because you've accepted the Lord and you're not entirely sure that He accepts you. What kind of sacrifice do you bring to the Lord? God set the stage for Finney by terrible pestilence and outbreaks. 
Anybody in here born before 1952? Jonas Salk came up with a polio vaccine in 1952. Changed the world. About eight years later, Albert Sabin came up with an oral vaccine. That's why some of us have a round vaccine hole in our shoulder and the others don't. You know what was going on before that? On average, 20,000 cases of polio in the United States yearly. About 1,000 deaths every year. Some years it peaked as high as 50,000 cases in a year. One year in New York alone, 6,000 people died of polio. By the year 1979, it was eradicated. The CDC declared that polio was no longer a serious threat. Do you know what people began doing? Because there was no fear of polio, there was contempt for the vaccine. In our time, people look at the vaccines and they don't, you don't want to take them. You don't think you need them because you've never seen polio. This is what our preaching has done. We've talked about the love of God so much that people don't think they need to be saved from the wrath of God because they haven't seen it. It is revealed in the futility of reprobate thinking. It is revealed all around us. This nation has been given over to wickedness. It shows in our Supreme Court justices. It shows in the people that we are electing of either party. It shows in the preaching from the pulpits. It shows... In that seven out of every ten Christians that attend church, men, are porn users. This is very similar to preaching about the love of God as the cure without understanding His justified wrath. We no longer have any fear of God and we are even showing contempt for the cure in our actions by treating salvation and repentance as foregone assumptions. Oh, I know that He forgives me. Why do you know that He forgives you? Peter did not know that that man was forgiven. Moses did not know that the nation was forgiven until they sought the face of God. But you're sure you're forgiven because you said you're sorry. There's not a month that's gone by. You haven't done the same thing. Not a year of your walk. But you've absolved yourself of all sin. We have a gospel-hardened nation. This is how so many are sexually immoral, sitting in churches as fired up as this one. Proverbs 1.7 is one that most people can quote. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Fools. I titled this message, The Grapes of Wrath. I care nothing about whether or not you think it was constructed well. I'm not looking for praise or plaudits from pundits. Grapes of Wrath. When you say that, people think of different things. The Grapes of Wrath was a novel written in 1939 by John Steinbeck. Some of its basic themes relate to the system being against the common man. Boy, don't we love those kind of themes. Everybody's been oppressed by somebody. The need to join together and how wrath and consequence seem to fall mostly on the poor. Any reason why that novel is popular? A couple of its main characters, Tom Joad, a Depression-era farmer moving from Oklahoma to California, and Jim Casey, whose initials, of course, are J.C., a fallen pastor that now believes that the majority theme of the Bible is only 
above. The irony here is extraordinary because man has in fact already joined together, but it's been in rebellion against God. The poor are actually his concern, but his wrath is on all men, whether rich or poor. And the problem is preachers exactly like Jim Casey. Those who believe the major message of the Bible is only love. Where did they steal the title of that book from? Revelation 14 and verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's Of God's... Is the book of Revelation in the Old or New Testament? They were trampled in the wine press outside the city. The blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle. Does that sound like God is angry? The great awakenings in this country had popular sermon titles like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In our time, our most popular sermons might as well be said, Sin all you want, God loves you. You'll go to heaven and He won't be there to rebuke you. God loves you, which is great because you love you. Started off being you're a champion. Now our preachers simply say, I am a champion. Revelation 19, the other place grapes of wrath are mentioned. Verse 11, I saw heaven open, and standing there before me was a white horse whose rider is called... Who is the rider? What is he called? What is he called? How can you be in him and be so unlike him? He is faithful. He is true. With justice, he judges and makes war. With what? He is a God of justice, not Old Testament only. New Testament, the return of Christ, with justice, He judges and makes war. Who is He making war on? His eyes were like blazing fire and on His head many crowns. He has a name written on Him that no one knows but He Himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and His name is the Word of God. Would you rather He be named New Testament? By the way, when this was written, there was only an Older Testament. We didn't have a New Testament codified yet. It's beginning to circulate, not yet compiled. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Definitely not weekly porn users. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. What are the grapes of wrath? God's wrath is being poured out against all godlessness. Wherever it's found, godlessness is bringing the wrath of God. The fact that people claim to be right with Him is only an evidence that they are being given over to His wrath. Have you ever read 2 Thessalonians? For this reason, He sends them a powerful delusion that they might believe the the lie, otherwise they would turn and be saved. 
Be careful that you're not deceived. Do you think it's strange that every warning about holiness begins with wording to that effect? Do not be deceived. It's almost as if the Holy Ghost was warning us there would be a day where there would be preaching that you could be saved without being holy. Wrath is coming upon this world. Romans 1 says this and even points to the futility of reprobate thinking as evidence. The kind of thinking that excuses sin easily and claims the righteousness of Christ with even more ease in contrast to all evidence. We are right at the end now. Could be the end for you. The final words and testimony against you. Or it could be a brand new beginning. One that's in purity. You need to consider that God will not spare you. Romans 8.32 says he did not spare his own son. You hear me? Well, if his son never sinned and he didn't spare his son, then what's his son being punished for? Do you see the cross as a tragedy? It's the greatest triumph in human history. A man lived in perfect obedience to God. And upon that man was poured out all of the wrath that was meant for mankind. God's heart was not hurt. He didn't look away. It was his will to crush him. That's what the word says. The curse of the law, Galatians 3, says came upon him. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. What is the cross about? It's about all of that pent-up wrath, all of that anger of God, all of that demand for justice being vented on someone who did not deserve it for you. How dare you take that so lightly? Shame on you for taking that so lightly. Do you think you will escape the judgment of God if you trample such a precious thing under your feet? Isaiah prophesied about this day. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Who crucified Jesus? You did. He died for your sin. How can you say you love him and commit sin that he died to eradicate? He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him by his wounds we are healed. You think it's hard to watch the passion of Christ? How are you going to look Jesus in the eye and you said, after I got saved, after I got baptized, after I got spirit filled, I continued to live exactly like a devil while claiming to be in you. Oh, not so much like a devil, not like those people over there. I used porn less than they did. I only committed adultery a few times. I only lied when it suited me. I only showed contempt for your spirit in most of the services. I was only concerned about where I was going to eat, who I was going to meet with, and what I was going to watch 50% of the time more than what you thought of me. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We hear those words, we go, oh, see, everybody's gone astray. We're all just sinners. Wrong. 
Each of us has turned his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of us were that way. But the remnant, the hundred out of a thousand, the ten out of a hundred are those that are no longer that way because they were washed. They were sanctified. They were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. When I got born again, I still had scabs on my knuckles. When I got born again, I was barely out of the stitches on my head. When I got born again, I had to spend two years apologizing to people that I physically harmed. You're sure that God has forgiven you because you say He has while you continue doing the same thing. I have not struck another human being in anger in 23 years. Before I was born again, it was a weekly event. Tell me sin is inevitable. The resurrecting power of Christ is in me. Sin is not inevitable. It's the exception. It's on the cowardly moments when I do not lean on Him, but I think myself strong enough to handle it. It's because I know that I'm not strong enough to handle it. I don't put myself in those situations. And when they are put before me and I have no choice, I lean on His strength. Sin is not inevitable. I'm going to shock your theology if I haven't yet. I have two scriptures left. If you've hung in there this long, you might as well be a little later. You cannot repent anytime you want to. You think you can. You plan to. You say that you will. And every drug addict says he can quit anytime he wants. But they can't. I grew up with derelicts. I've seen this. The man who is deceived doesn't know he's deceived. The one who's got the car keys in his hands claims he's not drunk all of the time. The one who's snorting cocaine says, I can stop anytime he wants, but he spends more every day on it. Acts 11.18 makes a profound statement, one that you ought to grab hold of. If you don't have this circled in your Bible, you might consider it. If I haven't shaken you at all yet, I, we're going to preach until we do. When they heard this, Acts 11.18, they had no further objections and praised God saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles, say even the Gentiles, Gentiles. repentance unto life. Granted means to be gifted, to be bestowed. The believers of the New Testament, 10, 15 years, somewhere in that neighborhood after the resurrection, were shocked, surprised beyond all belief, that even those godless Gentiles were turning from their wickedness and were now in love, shown by their actions, in love with Messiah. Repentance has to be given you. You do not have the strength to do it. We talked to a person in this church about the fear of the Lord. They said, I've done a study on the fear of the Lord. You're inviting God to smack you across the face. You've done a study on the fear of the Lord. Well, good for you. Why is it not evident in your life? If you knew the extent to which you dangle over the wrath of God and what a gift it is that He gives you the power to walk away from that, you would not take it for granted. I know a man that was using cocaine five years in between uses. 
No problem, social. Just use it, walk away. Until one day he couldn't walk away. He got to where he was spending $500 a day on it. Do you think cocaine or sin is more addictive? Our final scripture for the day. And I rarely lie when I'm preaching. I may squeeze one more in. It's Acts 26, 20. It's entirely different than the gospel you're used to, but it is the gospel Paul said he preached. First to, Damas- to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and then in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. You may not like what he said. You may think that that's bad theology. You'll have to take that up with God because this man was inspired to write the Holy Writ. Every syllable that he wrote was God-breathed as if God himself were speaking it. And how do you know when someone has repented? It is proven by their deeds. That's how you know. Not because like Esau you cried. Not because you wanted a blessing. But because God gave you, granted you the ability to turn from your wickedness. And that is evidenced by your turning and your walk. If you don't have that evidence, if last week you committed the same sin that you did a week before, and a week before, and a week before, if there's not a week of your Christian walk that you haven't committed that sin, how can you say, I'm right with God, let's go get something to eat? How can you do that? How can you not tear your clothes, wrench your garments, fall on the ground and beg Him to give you power over that sin? There's only one reason. You've had the vaccine so long, you don't even know what it's like to be under the wrath of God. You don't think you are. Of course, nobody who's deceived ever thinks they're deceived. They're all pretty good with God, you know? Everybody that's ever left this church from church discipline claims that they're right with God. Funny thing, you can be with us 10 years and love us every day of those 10 years, proclaim that there's nobody like us, nobody preaches the word like us. You you can just brag on us. The day you're rebuked for sin, suddenly everything about us has changed. That's amazing. Every message this ministry has ever preached is online. We don't edit them. We don't take them down. The good, the bad, the ugly is there. Do you know why? The fruit of this ministry and the fruit of our lives is righteous. Can you say the same? Not turning to it, not putting it on the screen. So we stand to our feet. Malachi 3.17 says something. It says that there will again be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. There will again be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. When a righteous man gives in to wickedness, it's like a polluted well or a muddied spring. Are the pure waters of Christ flowing out of you? Are you a polluted spring? To spend this kind of time on a subject like this 
guaranteed not to increase offerings. Guaranteed not to increase attendance. Guaranteed to make some of you mad enough to want to spit. If that's not proof we love you, I don't know what else I could do. But when I stand before the king, I will have done my all. I will have laid it all down. October is the closing of a five-year time period for me. I'm going to be innocent of your blood. question is, will you be innocent? Or do you walk out of here exactly like you walked in, absolving yourself? We're going to begin to worship. We're even going to dim the lights. And we're going to do that so that you don't feel a bright spotlight in this room coming from, uh, like on you, like you're being interrogated. But you know what? We're not going to close our eyes. We're not going to bow our heads. We're not going to offer you something. We're going to tell you either Jesus Christ is worth getting your life right and you'll do that, or He's not. And like Elijah said, like Joshua said, like John the baptizer said, if you don't want to serve Him, don't. It will not lessen his glory even a little bit. And I'm not going to shed any more tears over people who want to live in their sin. We're going to fight with those who want to be righteous.